Thanks for listening to the Mentors for Military podcast. Our goal each week is to bring you amazing content and guests. Support our podcast by visiting our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash mentors, the number four M-I-L, to pick a tier that is right for you or donate any amount you like. It's that easy. You may even pick up some cool swag or have an opportunity to help us co-host an episode. Help us bring you an awesome episode each week by visiting patreon.com forward slash mentors for mill today. This podcast is sponsored by Uncanna, trusted natural solutions. Uncanna is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncanna team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OptNatural. Uncanna is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncanna.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. The Mentors for Military Podcast. A lot of people are going to be listening to your story. Let's put it that way. Okay. Well, let's make it count. <laughs> uh, I, I won't let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> uh, I love it. So let's start off at the very beginning and, and uh, you know, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and why is it that you ended up becoming a Royal Marine? How did that get started? Uh, well, so it wasn't a Royal Marine. I was a Royal Engineer, but oh, okay. I, um, I, I Dave's spent most of my me, military so. career with three commando brigade working with Royal Marines because the, the Royal Marines uh, in the UK, the commandos, they don't have their own engineering assets. So uh, we were detached to work with them. But um, going back to the beginning, well, I grew up in Hong Kong. My, uh, really? my father was an airline pilot out there. So we had, uh, we had a pretty lavish lifestyle um, as expats in Hong Kong. Um, and, uh, but prior to that, my dad was in the air force. So there was a, there was a military connection there. He did 10 years, I think on, on fast jets in the UK. And then, uh, and then decided he needed to earn some money. So he, he joined the airlines. And, uh, <laughs> so I spent most of my growing up in Hong Kong, which was brilliant because we had such a such incredible freedom out there. There was, uh, you know, there was, there's very little crime or any of that nonsense. So as kids, we, uh, we used to just kind of roam around Hong Kong and, uh, and cause mischief. And, uh, I've, I've got two, uh, I've got an older brother and a younger brother and a, and a younger sister and we all get on pretty well. And, uh, so we had a lot of fun out there. It was great. Yeah. When I first, uh, well, my father was in the Navy for 23 years and we started off, uh, that I can recall and remember in Japan, and so I have, you know, really small memories just because I was so young, but the memories I do have are really good. And the fact that I was exposed to a different country at a very early age, I think was very healthy. 
and um, and usually a lot of fun as well because you know back in those days and stuff uh, the dollar to the you know dollar was a little bit different uh, how far it went what you were able to do and for us it was just buying candy soda those types of things but still it was a lot of fun what we were able to do at that time frame yeah and you know, that's interesting so we were exposed to people from all over the world i went to school with you know japanese chinese koreans americans canadians um and and that was a, a brilliant experience as a kid um but we we're also you know uh hong kong is right in the middle of a really interesting part of the world so it was easy to get to malaysia and thailand and japan and so as kids we we got to explore that part of the world which was fantastic and uh i think i think that's invaluable unfortunately my, my children have to manage on a, a more uh, meager existence so they don't get those <laughs> 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 but hey Hey, have you taken them on any trips or anything uh, on holiday? Any really, any place well, other than the UK? We, 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 <laughs> we create our own excitement down in the southwest of England. We've got a lot of good beaches and cliffs, and uh, you we've know, got Dartmoor. So uh, we, we, we kind of we go and explore that part of the world, which is uh, a lot more cost effective. <laughs> <laughs> most, most definitely. Uh, uh, they have fun. Yeah. So what uh, what was it then outside of just your father that drew you to going into the military then? Um, well, you know, I didn't. It took me a long time to work out what I was going to do. I I studied engineering at Oxford University um, and was going to go into engineering, but uh, at that time the the universities weren't very well hooked up with industry, and uh, I just didn't. The the engineering companies I came across did not inspire me at all. Um, and I still, you know, as I was leaving university, I just couldn't, I didn't really want to face a, a corporate job, an office job. So, I, But I hadn't decided to join the, the, the military at this stage. I had worked um, with a squadron university. I'd acquired 60 hours of flying. That was brilliant. But I didn't really want to be a pilot. You know, for that... Uh, I think I wanted something a bit more, bit more physically challenging, if anything. Anyway, I went travelling. I went to Central Asia, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, and went uh, up into the mountains in the Chinchan Mountains with these uh, Soviet alpinists, and and had had some pretty incredible adventures in that part of the world. And came back from that and thought, yeah. I need to, I need to join the army. I need to do something that pays me. To, you didn't already have enough adventure going on in your life, I guess, right? Need it, don't you? I still need it to be honest. <laughs> look, look at this office. <laughs> so, so, so yeah. The, I, but I didn't. So I didn't join the army until I was twenty-four. Um, and I was actually initially I was I was sponsored by the parachute regiment. Um, I did pretty well at all their kind of. Um, you know, pre-selection stuff. So that was all going well. But then I thought, well, one day I'm going to leave the army. And at least if I join the Royal Engineers, I'll be able to make use of my engineering degree, which I worked quite hard for. And it would give me some grounding to, uh, to, to move into Civvy Street. So I thought but the sensible option was to join the Royal Engineers. And, and and that's what I did, and they, they kind of guaranteed that I could either go and join the, 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 uh, the, the commando unit or the para unit. So we, we struck a deal, and after Sanders, joined the Royal Engineers, and uh, 
did the troop commanders course, which was brilliant. Um, that was about, that's quite long. That was about eight, nine months, I think. And then, then from that, I was, uh, posted down to five, nine commando engineers down in, um, in North Devon, Southwest England. Uh, they put me through a hellish beat up to prepare me for the commando course. <laughs> but you know, the, so the, the Royal Marines do their own commando course and it's, it's much, you know, it's about a year long and, and, uh, we all know about that, but there's also an all arms commando course. So, you know, anyone from the military, RAF, Navy, army, if they want to go and work with the, the commandos, they've got to go and do the all arms commando course. You get the green beret. Um, and it's, I think it's three months long. So you, you you do all of their um, all of their uh, all their tests, the bottom field. Um, More of a condensed version. Yeah, it, so you you kind of turn up as a trained soldier, um, pretty fit, having been thrashed by your own unit, because all the units want to make sure they send the best guys and For don't sure. let themselves down. So. So we got we got a pretty good uh, 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 like warm up for it, and then you go down to Limpston and do the uh, all arms commando course, finishing with a thirty miler, um, and then you're good to go. And uh, yeah, it was it was great, and uh, and you, and you and you're doing it with all the other ranks as well. So there's only I think there's only three officers on my course, and um, and then the rest of them were were um, uh, non commissioned officers and and uh, and privates. So. So what year was that, Dave? That that was two thousand three. That was two thousand three. That was that was while um, Telic, you know, Telic one, the second Gulf War kicked off. Pretty much, I think, just before we started that. So I w- I finished that course and then went out on the tail end of Telic one. But by the time I got there, the boys had done all the all the hard graft, and it was you know after that first phase, it went quiet for a while. So I turned up for that, that quiet phase and just played a lot of volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sunned myself in uh, Umkazar. Did a bit of clearance work. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a pretty cushy tour. Got a medal for it. <laughs> and, then, and then flew home. So that, uh, that, was, that wasn't very eventful. You know, I did the army dive course, and 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 the uh, with the, when you work with three commander brigades, you do the winter warfare course as well, which is absolutely nails, but amazing. You know, it's a, you're operating up in uh, north of the Arctic Circle, so it's a spectacular environment to be in, but but tough and and totally unforgiving. You know, you've got your admin's got to be spot on because uh, as, as soon as you start to flounder, the cold gets you and then it just goes from bad to worse. Oh, my God, man. I've seen some of the cold yeah. weather training photos and those guys, they just look miserable. I mean, I know it's good training, <laughs> but wow. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't produce good skiers. If we ever had to uh, take on the, the, you know, the Russians across the northern plains, we'd be fucked. But um, <laughs> the, the, as a mechanism for teaching soldiering, it's 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 incredible. Yeah. yeah. So the nice thing about working in a small unit like uh, like Five Nine was that. You know, you got a lot of very motivated individuals, um, all. Um, pretty obviously physically capable but um also good thinking soldiers clever guys and uh 
and it's it's yeah it's just good to be around um you know people that are similarly motivated and 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 keen to be there and as an officer you know having blokes that want to be there and are highly motivated obviously makes your life a lot easier so uh so that's good yeah so take us up to about 2006, 2007 time frame then, because at this time frame, were you still with the same unit or? Yeah. So it's funny how little things cause sort of big deviations and you'll, you know, the way life turns out. I went windsurfing in like, was it about October 2000? No, it would have been you know, beginning of 2006. I went windsurfing, broke my ankle in North Devon. I was supposed to be going to do selection, but because of my ankle, I couldn't do that. So they then posted me to a unit in Germany, 2A Engineer Regiment. <laughs> and I was a bit miffed, but, um, you know, you, you do as you're told. So I turned up in Hamel, uh, near, near Hanover in Germany, and rapidly got involved in, uh, in all the stuff that goes on out there and realized that yeah, it, you know, it was quite different to Five Nine, but uh, there were lots of great things about working in a in a unit based in Germany, and uh, and the the soldiers were were equally as professional um, and great to work with. So that was a brilliant experience. Unfortunately, I wasn't there very long before we deployed out to Afghanistan, and that was sort of September two thousand and six. We went out, so we. We picked up the tail end of Herrick Four, and that was uh, so. That was the, the, you know the infamous tour that the parachute regiment was was sent out on to go and sort out Afghanistan. Um, it was supposed to be a, a reconstruction tour. We were going to rebuild their infrastructure, and our um, Secretary of State for Defence famously said that you know we would go. It'd all be done within six months, and a shot would not be fired. <laughs> Well, uh, unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way. The Paras got properly uh, dragged into a, into a, a vicious battle out there. And they had their guys based in uh, these remote outposts um, throughout Helmand province, engaged in, in, in serious close-quarter combat. Um, and there wasn't a lot of reconstruction going on. Even So we had an engineer squadron out there um, but they were they were just being used as infantry. Um, so the the powers that be decided that we needed to bolster the the engineering um, assets and and put more emphasis on the on the reconstruction. And as a result of that, two eight engineer regiment were deployed to Afghanistan to focus on the on the on, on rebuilding infrastructure and on winning the hearts and minds um i was the ops officer at 28 at the time so uh, i was heavily involved in all the planning and uh and getting ourselves um set up to to deliver uh the the, the new capability that they needed out there and it was you know it was it was it was great because we had some really clear missions um Everyone could, you know, the the value of what we were doing was was obvious to all. Um, And so, you know, everyone deployed, morale was high, um, everyone was very motivated and and they knew what they they had to do and we just got stuck in to 
to building um, police stations and schools and uh, community centers. And a lot of the time we were trying to do it by using local, um, you know, local labor, local skills. So our guys were trying to kind of put ourselves set. We were setting the projects up and then, and then trying to kind of stay in the background um, to avoid these, uh, these new projects from becoming targets and to, to kind of improve the chances of the, the locals um, to kind of make these projects a success. But some of the some of the tasks did require, you know, deliberate. Um, they were deliberately planned operations that required, uh, you know, there were kinetics, so the Marines had to stick out um, uh, their guys on the ground to provide the engineers with space to build um, uh, checkpoints or police stations or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So there was a mixture of tasks. There was there was kind of traditional. Um, uh, construction tasks uh, using local capacity, and, and then some some more uh, kind of aggressive kinetic type uh, tasks, just putting stuff together with Hesco Bastion. You know, fairly agricultural engineering, but 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 exciting. Most of that, I I didn't even get out. I was I was I was just in the Lashkagar or, or Kandahar initially, and then we moved down to Lashkagar, and I was just banging out op orders, and I was I was just a desk monkey, just doing all the planning and, uh, and, and, you know, involved in the briefings and, uh, and writing up orders. So, and, and it was, it was, it was gruesome because you were, you know, seven days a week, there was no, there was no respite. I think that's the, the bread and butter of the engineers though, Dave, isn't it? You know, getting out and doing your trade, particularly in that type of environment as well to, to, to add to it as well. It's, it's kind of what most sappers, join up for really you know yeah the boys were loving it yeah, yeah. They, were, they were you know they were soldiering and they were exercising their trade and they were doing it um for you know for a good cause yeah yeah so this was known i guess as operation glacier oh uh, yeah no you're talking about the um so the the heli hero story as, yes. the, as the sun uh sun name I try and get my wife to call me Heli Hero. <laughs> Stop doing it, unfortunately. Doesn't um, work, right? Not anymore. No. Yeah. No. I actually wooed her with this story, but um, it's worn <laughs> off now. <laughs> Couple of kids um, later. So, yeah. So the, this is kind of the one bit of excitement that I got in Afghanistan earned me a military cross, which was, uh, which is pretty good kind of record, but, um, I think it pissed everyone else off. Um, so I was asked to go and, uh, support the, uh, the battle group operating in the South of Helmand province as I was, I was down there operating as their battle group engineer. And, um, over a number of months, we gathered a good deal of intelligence on this large, imposing fort on the east bank of the River Helmand, down near Garmsir. Um, we'd studied it in some detail over perhaps three months and reckoned that it, uh, it was a major staging post for Taliban recruits coming up from Pakistan, from the mm-hmm. south. Um, and we thought there were about sort of 200 men of fighting age in and around that fort but it was also surrounded by uh you know farmlands and uh there were 
there's a rural communities living around there. So it's hard to say, you know, who was, who was, where their influence stopped, basically. Um, but based on the, the, you know, the old um, adage that you, you don't really, you never take on a, a, a defended position like that unless you've got a three to one advantage. We cleared, we didn't have 600 blokes, so it was never really, a, it was never really an option to, to, to assault it directly. But it was clear that we had to do something about it because it was feeding um, uh, Taliban troops up into the rest of Helmand and the rest of Afghanistan. So uh, we we took the battle group down there. We had um, we had Zulu Company. Uh, it was a Royal Marine Company. We had a squadron of scimitar tanks. We had the Brigade Reconnaissance Force, um, some engineers, some gunners. Had about 500 blokes, I think, in total in the whole in the whole kind of battle group. But Zulu Company, the guys that at the sharp end, um, were less than 100 strong. Oh, we have Vikings as well. We had a Viking uh, uh, squadron. Um, and on the night of the 14th of January, our guys kind of formed up and, and, uh, conducted, uh, like skirmish attacks on the West bank of the, uh, the, the river. Um, but we we're only firing into known firing posts. So we'd identified a number of, of, of sentry posts, um, blokes with weapons. So we, we were pretty specific about where we, where we could direct our fires. Um, and, uh, and we were just trying to draw the enemy out, trying to trying to get them to to reveal themselves, so that we could we could hammer them with. Uh, we had some uh, air assets as well, so it was very quiet. It, you know, they were they were obviously very very disciplined because um, we got very little back over the course of the night. Um, and during the uh, the orders process, the uh, CO had told Zulu company, he'd given them a be prepared slash, be prepared to dominate the ground around the fort, okay? Which basically meant be prepared to cross the river right. and attack the, attack the fort, dominate the ground and, and give them a, a good shoeing in their own in their own home. But I don't think that was ever really taken that seriously. I don't think Zulu company ever rehearsed that, uh, that, that task. Um, certainly not well enough anyway. The the big problem with it, well, the big problem was the intelligence and also the the access. So there was only one known crossing point over the river, and it was immediately in front of the of the fort. Um, so, so it was a uh, yeah, it was a pretty tall order. But anyway, over the course of the night, we got we were watching them. We had um, we had uh, you know assets in the sky with 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 um, really good optics. So. We had a, a video feed and we, we, there was just no activity and very little coming back at us. So um, CO decided that he was going to uh, initiate that be prepared to order and uh, he brought Zoo Company, company commander up, briefed him. Um, I, I delivered the, the brief on the ground and uh, it all happened fairly quickly. It was in sort of early hours in the morning. He went back with the, with the, uh, the Viking company commander. Uh, the Viking commander was with us as well. They went back. The boys all mounted up, and um, 
was just just going light, I think, when the guys uh, mounted their assault on the fort. So they, they kind of they all formed up in the, in the Vikings and then stormed across the river um, in single file. And uh, we were in the headquarters about five clicks west of the objective. But, you know, you've got the usual radios and surveillance aids. So we're, we're listening and watching. And it all seems to go okay until they get to the far bank of the river and then the, the you know the enemy just just totally let ambush. loose with with yeah. everything they had they, you know they they've been waiting for the the marines to to come into the you know within the effective range of their weapon systems and now now that they're in the killing area they just hammered them with everything they had um and so the boys got onto the into this this cloud field immediately in front of the of the fort and started to uh, debus but the first four guys were, were shot um and then the others were you know the others were just pinned down it was pretty open ground so there's there's very little cover other than, other than the vehicles themselves they're trying to administer first aid to the to the casualties um and it's they've just lost the momentum now. So, you know, the, the attack really has stalled and to make matters worse, uh, the, the, the company commander as he's, he's had a hell of a time over the preceding months and he's just reached the end of his tether and he's unable to, to direct, you know, the battle. Mm. So the guys are now, they've not got any leadership. The, the, the attack has, has, has faulted um, and they're in a pretty bad position. Um, eventually, the sergeant major turns up and he uh, he got out of his vehicle, organised the boys into a into a sort of into a hasty defence, managed to evacuate the casualties, and then then coordinated a, an orderly withdrawal back across the river without any further casualties. So he did a pretty good job very good job in fact considering it was uh you know he's supposed to be managing the reorg um so the guys all get back and then uh they dust themselves down and uh go through the process i'm i'm in the headquarters tent kind of kind of redundant at this stage so i'm just trying to help with the casualties and keep them warm reassure them until the until the um the uh the mert arrives to take them back to bastion and then we started to hear like rumors that the Zulu company were missing someone, a Lance Corporal Ford. But at the time, you just assume, oh, you know, it's just a bit chaotic. It will settle down. It'll turn up. Right. Um, but he didn't. So it was soon became clear that he'd been left on the on the enemy objective. No one really knew where he was. Um, he was last seen near the vehicles, but but he was, yeah. So they don't know where he is. They don't know if he's dead or alive. Um, he he uh, made it. A, they last saw him across the river, though, on this side, on the on the the side that no, they retreated on back the, on the far side. Oh, on, on the far, far side. side. Okay. On, on the on, he's one of the first guys to to dismount. Um. Yeah, that's that's a horrible feeling, you know, when mm, yeah, you just you know, you've lost someone and and. Uh, and and now the objective is swarming with with enemy fighters. You know, just they're coming out of the woodwork. 
so they've concealed themselves really well and there's clearly a you know, there's a labyrinth of tunnels and, and rat runs and trenches that um have been well concealed um and uh it's just it's just like a hornet's nest now so we um we don't really know what to do because can't really go back in if we don't know where he is it would be a it'd be a disaster so yeah. we focus our efforts on trying to find him and um the british army at the time had these uh these kind of they look like polystyrene model aircraft um but uh they've got a little camera in and uh we launch one of these things i think it's called desert hawk and uh and f- did a couple of circuits over the objective and, and actually found him one of the uh, yeah we located him using this 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 uh, little uav still alive pinned down uh we can't tell he's he's on he's down um so we call in the apaches and they they come and take a closer look they got better um uh you know visual um better videos basically and they they've also got thermal imaging and they reckon from the the heat signature that he might still be alive so now we know where he is and he's on the on the outside that there's the fort's got this like big badass like perimeter wall with these sentry posts it's like a medieval fort it's got like big big sentry positions in each corner of the wall and he is on and then within the, the there's a there's an outer wall and there's an inner wall and then there are compounds so he's on the outside of the outer wall, but quite close to the to the wall, um, and uh, and so he's accessible. So um, right at this stage, it's like there's no question about it. We've got to go at him. So we start putting the plans together, and uh, we're like, well, we don't have any support helicopters, um, and there's only one way across the river. So we're going to have to just go back in with the Vikings. Um, there's no other way to do it. But at least this time, we can we can put in some decent pre-fires and and uh, we, you know we don't we know we know the, it's a bad place and the, we know where all the firing points are now so we can really use our um, air assets and our artillery to to good effect so they get more cover. Um, but just before they they depart to go and uh, do the job, the one of the Apache pilots calls up. And he speaks to the CO, and then it becomes clear that the Apaches have got like this alternative plan. A pretty all... interesting plan at that. Yeah, well, um, we it's... we didn't we weren't aware of the details. Um, it's not a, it's not a bad plan for the guy driving the flying the helicopter on the inside. Yeah, I think he got a right bollocking for this, but um, <laughs> good on him. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's this alternative plan. We're gonna use we're gonna use the Apaches, and um, and it sounds like they're gonna put blokes on the outside of the Apaches, and they're gonna fly in. I remember at the time thinking, oh, that's brilliant. You know, SF are gonna come down. They're gonna, they're gonna jump on. They've got this 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 cool drill that they do. Um, we're gonna get the professionals in to come and sort us out. No. Nope. Uh, and then he. The, the, Colonel turns around and goes, "Right, I need uh, I need four volunteers." I'm like, oh, that's that's <laughs> wasn't expecting that, but um, a bunch of us volunteer um, because 
I don't know. You just do. You know, we're partly responsible for this this mess. We're we're all part of the headquarters. We'd all helped put the plan together. We'd all agreed that it was a good idea to go and do this. So a bunch of us volunteered, um, and the uh, the colonel's kind of scanning across his his volunteers, and he's like, "Well, no, I need you here because you got to coordinate the fires, and you're coordinating recce." And then he kind of comes to me, he's like, "Yeah, Captain Rig, good, you'll go." <laughs> oh. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I was Bakshi at this stage, being uh, having being a royal engineer, not having really any any you know, I've done all the IPB and all the all the planning. So, just shortly after that, the the RSM pucks his head into the tent to get a um to just get a, like an update, I think. And he's just got his head through the tent like this, and the colonel says, "Yeah, good RSM, you'll go too." <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even know there's an Apache plan. He's got an absolutely, absolutely no clue. <laughs> so, so he's, and then there were two other lads, a, a um, Marine Fraser Perry. Did they get volunteered or did you, uh, did you volunteer him or did they volunteer? Boss, I think, I think a, a Marine Fraser Perry's boss said, oh, um, Marine Fraser Perry, the colonel needs, um, uh, needs a volunteer. And he's like, yeah, boss, I'll do it. He literally just woke up. He's like, I'll do it. Right, okay. Get you, get you rifle in your webbing and go and join captain rig over there and uh and then the other chap was um uh called robinson so uh or marine robinson at that stage so the the boys all joined me and uh i kind of got them together i was like right guys so what we're going to do is um uh we're going to the apaches are going to land over here in a minute and we're going to we're going to get on the apaches two on each apache so it'd be myself and Fraser Perry and then RSM you go with Marine Robertson Fraser Perry was only about 19 years old he looked like you'd blow him over it was, <laughs> I was horrified but, but um, so I told the boys what we were going to do and they, you know, they didn't they just didn't bat an eyelid there wasn't a, 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 a moment's hesitation it was just just phenomenal um, either that or they were just in deep shock yeah probably so <laughs> So well, they, uh, at this point, they're trusting you're going to lead them in the right direction. Yeah. Well, I was I was trying to convey that that kind of theme, but I, I was a bit unsure myself. To be <laughs> uh, uh, well, we we had no idea how we were on Apache. You know, I wasn't aware that anything like this had ever been done. Or that you know, because Apache is a it's a gunship, isn't it? It's not meant to carry passengers. So um, anyway, it didn't really happen. It all happened so quickly. The, the helicopters i think they were running low on fuel so we had to just get on with it and they, they, they landed behind us and um ran up to the to the the, the apache and the pilot he flicks open the, the canopy and and leans out and just kind of gives me a big thumbs up as if uh, all right you're ready to go I was like, no way you got you need to explain to me how this is going to work um, so he jumps. He couldn't. We couldn't really converse because the engines were. So he, he jumps down, and we 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 kind of drew a little sketch in the sand, and and everyone. And we got a brief, and we're like, yeah. okay, right, yeah. fair I, enough. I, so I can totally see this, like yeah. you know, drawing in the sand, like okay, you over here on this, yeah. you know, me fly, right? You got it. Okay, we're good. Yeah, pretty much one of those that, things, I guess. That's right. It was a, it was it was the world's simplest plan. You just, <laughs> uh, Apache has these two uh, stubby wings, and. Uh, we were going to sit on one of those, one of those wings, one either side, um, and there was no strapping on around that business. You just, okay, so I was just getting ready to ask you. So, yeah. did you have any equipment, D rings, or <laughs> anything? I mean, right. nothing. And to be frank, 
I think we're all quite keen to, to get off the helicopter as quickly as possible at the other end. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, uh, so, so what, what did you hold on to then uh, once you got up on there? Well, there's actually there was this ledge that we sat on, which I think was the fuel tank. Um, and then uh, there was a handhold that I could hold my left hand. Have my, um, for them my, to get uh, into the cockpit. For the pilot yeah. to get, it's used for the pilot to get in the cockpit, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, right. that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I had my rifle in my right hand, um, and uh, and I think my feet were resting on the Hellfire rocket rails. <laughs> oh my god! That, so that was it. That's all we needed. All right, um, good to go. Was, Let's go. Yeah. So we uh, with the engine intake right behind your head. Yeah. It was, and as we took <laughs> off, the kind of the engine's spooling up, and you can feel your helmet being like sucked. Oh, backwards. sucked backwards! That's great. <laughs> yeah, this is a great, brilliant plan. Yes. <laughs> so if anyone out there ever wants to do this again, just make sure you like lean forwards or do your helmet up. <laughs> now, as I understand it, at this uh, point too, they called some nearby NATO assets in to assist some airstrikes. So you had some American A-10s, a B-1 uh, bomber came in. Uh, yeah. They kind of kicked off the assault, right, by dropping some JDAMs, right? Yeah, yeah, they, they hit it pretty hard. Um, and um, so as we, I mean, the timing was 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 pretty important because um, we we came across the desert and it was a it was a I mean, it was bizarre it was such a it was such a nice day in many ways um did you have the speakers and music playing as you guys were coming in <laughs> i mean this is this is yeah. movie ready <laughs> it was surreal yeah no i remember as we were flying over the headquarters all the headquarters stuff came out and they were like waving and taking photos and stuff <laughs> i bet they were like let's capture <laughs> <Yeah>. this moment <laughs> so that's all right for you lot <laughs> Uh, so we we we're, we're flying over the desert and there's there's kind of camels and goats going about their business below and you can see the river in the distance and then beyond the river it's just absolute hell there's the sky is just full of dust and and debris from all the uh all the ordnance that's going in um and we we came up from the from the south and uh the, the, we were supposed. I was supposed to be on the lead helicopter, but somehow it all got swapped around. So the RSM uh, ended up on the lead helicopter, and uh, the the helicopter just just went for it. It just dived into the cloud of dust. We we lost sight of it. I think he got a bit disorientated because he ended up fl- overflying the perimeter wall and landing in the Taliban compound. Oh my god! So as we come in. Um, it's uh yeah it's pretty uh it's a it's a pretty hellish sight there's just buildings smashed to pieces there's trees on fire there's big craters where all the the um the ordnance has gone in but there's still people firing at us down there <laughs> and uh so you kind of try to like make like a chameleon on the side of the helicopter hoping that that uh, no one no one actually spots you um but but the as I look down to where we're going, the the I can see that the lead helicopter is not there. I can, so I presume it's it's. I, I think at the time I'm not sure where it was. I just it just wasn't there. So we're we're now basically just down to two. Um, but as soon as that helicopter put down, we just leapt 
that from the helicopter. I, I've recognised the ground. I could see the wall. The guys had been briefed to just run forwards to the wall, and uh, and then we would kind of regroup there and uh, move towards Corporal Ford. Um, so uh, so that's what we did. But um, as I started running, I actually spotted Corporal Ford. So I just went straight to him, and uh, uh, he was he was laying down at the base of the wall, slumped over. He had his back to me. His back's just covered in in blood, and and I and I get to him, and I'm, I'm it was, yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty, I'm blowing pretty hard because it was, I don't know, it was, the ground was pretty uneven, and uh, adrenaline's pumping, and I kneel down beside him and and roll him towards me, and uh, his head just, he's got, an, you know, he's got a hole in his head, he's clearly dead, he's he's grey, um. But you don't really you don't really stop think about it. You just right, just gotta get him back. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, didn't didn't do a great job of getting him back. To be honest, I was uh, I was trying to trying to I had like my arms under his his arms. And I was kind of cradling his head. And I was trying to drag him back. Well, initially, I tried to lift him, tried to stick him on my shoulders, do a farm and carry. But I, he was he was a big lad. And he was a radio operator, so he had a load of kit, and I, I, I just couldn't couldn't get him, you know, couldn't get off my knees. So, so that wasn't working. So then I just started dragging him, but badly. You know, I was, I was, I was, I think, I think because I come, I come from the headquarters to straight to this this environment. It, I hadn't properly adjusted, and the drills hadn't really kicked in, or maybe I've been sat at the desk too long. I don't know. Um, so I'm making really poor progress getting him back. Um, we should have just grabbed his webbing and and you know and just just dragged him back. He's he's dead after all. Are you still taking fire at this point? There's there's a lot of gunfire. Um, most of it's ours, I suspect. Uh, we had two other um, Apaches uh, providing us with top cover. Hmm. Okay. Um, and they're so close that you know the the brass cases are kind of falling around me. Um, so. So you can imagine the noise because oh, they've got yeah. 30 more cannons. Uh, and they're chucking mortars in, but uh, not very accurately. So they're overshooting. Um, but yeah, I'm starting to feel a little bit, well, feeling very vulnerable because you just bent over, dragging this, this guy back. And uh, a little bit starting to, I know I'm making shit progress um, and I've got a long way to go to get back to the helicopter. So starting to feel a little bit panicky, I guess. And then um, Marine Fraser Perry joins me. Um, so it was good, good to see him. But um, didn't didn't just didn't grip the situation very well. To be honest, he, he he grabbed his feet and he was trying to he was he was lifting his feet and I was lifting his his, um, his upper body. And it, you know, it didn't really the heavy bit was my end, so I should have. Should have said, "Hey, come on, fucking, <laughs> let's uh, come on, here, let's grab his webbing, let's let's you know just 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 get him back." Um, but we were kind of, yeah. Anyway, um, so this is all taking an agonisingly long time, and W O two Ed Mace because he, he wrote a book about this. And to be fair to me, he, he jumped out and uh, and and uh, ran to our assistance and uh, and and. Yeah, to, to be honest, he gripped it, and uh, uh, at that stage, we we 
properly, you know, just got got hold of him and, and dragged him back and, and uh, gone back to the helicopter. So you got him right back onto the same Apache that you just yeah, came in on. Yeah, so we had we did have this green canvas strop that we um, we stuck around his torso and, and uh, secured him to the undercarriage. Um, it would have been would have been a very difficult situation had he been seriously wounded. Um, I'm not sure how that would have worked, but uh, I guess we'd have found a way. Um, so yes, secured him, and then um, obviously took off, and and amazingly, um, I think the Apache took a few rounds, but it's got some decent armour. Um, but we all got away unscathed, and uh, actually, just as we we're about to, just as we were securing Corporal Ford to the helicopter. The RSM and Marine Robertson turned up absolutely blowing they were because they they'd been basically they'd run all the way around the Taliban compound under fire um, trying to get to us and uh, and then they got to us and we're like right guys what's going on okay well we're done um, best go back to your helicopter oh my goodness <laughs> they had to they had to run all the way back the poor muggers. Um, but they managed it, and uh, and they too were were able to to lift off and get back across the river. But as we flew back across uh, the Helmand River, you could see the rest of the, the the battle group were kind of lined up watching us. And at that point, you know, they're obviously hoping that um, that uh, Court Ford was still alive, but. They'd have seen him hanging limp from beneath the helicopter, and at that point, they would have realized that he was dead. Um, and uh, I think that was a pretty tough moment for everyone. So, uh, but, yeah. So, um, moments of, it was, yeah. I mean, we got away with it because we, we just, you know, it was pure determination and some momentum, um, surprise, um, and a lot of lot of support and firepower. But um, yeah, it was a fair amount of chaos, as you can tell. A completely surreal moment, really, Dave. You know, listening to you talking about that, as an outsider, you can understand how your brain couldn't process that. You know, you, you've literally been in, as you said, in an ops room. Next thing, you're strapped. Well, not you're strapped. Holding on to the outside of an Apache helicopter, flying over this desert scenery into an unfolding hell and jumping out and, you know, coming across the worst-case scenario, you know, a, um, a dead member of, of your, effectively your battle group. And having to deal with that, and, and, and I can I can fully understand how you, you you weren't processing it, you know. And you're saying I didn't, I, my drills hadn't kicked in, and I, and I couldn't get the grips with just grabbing him by his webbing. And I can't really imagine what your brain was doing at that point. Yeah, I've you know I've reflected on it quite a bit over the years because it's over ten years ago now. Um. And there's a lot I could have done better, no doubt about it. But um, but I think I think yeah, I think it's it was partly just 
going from such from between such extreme scenarios mm. environments <laughs> so quickly uh, just hadn't really I mean, it, I mean the bit I missed out was I got onto the onto the Apache and uh, we're flying across the desert and it occurred to me that I hadn't test fired my weapon and my weapon had been sat in a rifle rack just acquiring dust for about a week <laughs> and being, being the shit officer that I am I hadn't, I hadn't cleaned it as, a, as I should have been doing um, and now I needed it and <laughs> So I'm sat on the Apache thinking, oh no, what, you know, what if it doesn't, you know what the SA-80 is like? It's funny what you beat yourself right. up with uh, at those times and probably still even today about, damn it, why didn't I clean that weapon or what? Jeez, yeah. if I'd only, you know, it probably. Well, I, I took the opportunity to, to fire off a few test shots from the, uh, from the wing of the Apache. So. Oh, were you, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> There's not many people can say they've done that, Dave. No, no, yes, it's a good, uh, it's a good, good one to have on your CV. Um, and it worked; it worked fine. So I was happy with that. But the noise of the firing action, like, um, alerted the pilots. They both spun around in their seat and just gave me this this comical bollocking through the canopy. I think, I think they thought it had an ND, and maybe they're worried about the empty cases getting sucked into the engine air intake. So they were oh. like gesticulating at me like, no, stop that. <laughs> no. I was, like, oh, I was just, just test firing. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I can't imagine. So... Dave, was you still part of two eight then, or had you gone rotated back to five nine? Yeah, no, I was. I was the ops officer for two eight engineer regiment at that point. Yeah, nice. yeah. So five nine were able to disown me. <laughs> so, sounded like you uh, you knew that that unit before, Scott. Were you a part of it as well, or is it something you were familiar with? Because you had no, a bit so of a smile at one point when he mentioned that. Dave and I have got a lot of mutual friends, really. Um, I went through basic training with one of the guys Dave went through on his troop commander's course, I think, Dave, wasn't it? Yeah, Jim. Uh, Jim yeah. yeah. So, um, didn't you say that uh, Dean Stott did one of these recently? Yes. Yeah, Stott, yeah. he came on about six months ago, I think. Yeah, I think so. so Stotty was, he wasn't actually part of my troop, but he was part of recce troop at five, nine while I was there. And he was, you know, he was one of the characters that you don't forget. The smile on my face really was five, nine, the, the, the commander squadron and, and nine squadron, the para squadron are, are kind of held in, in the elite, if you like, of the Royal engineers. And then for, for, for Dave to carry out that action as part of a, are they mechanized to it? Uh, they were amphibious. Amphibious. Um, so yeah, an amphibious had, regiment. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, it's it's a bizarre one, really. I get you. You had the dagger on your arm, so I think the CEO will probably pick you up for that. Well, he's got a dagger; he'll do. Yeah, possibly, possibly <laughs> either that or yeah. It was actually, although there were a couple of volunteers who were actually selecting from a cast of one because everyone else was needed. <laughs> <laughs> there's no engineer requirement for this uh, yeah. for this battle uh, tasking, no. so there's there's our instant volunteer. 
Uh, well, I think it was an amazing story of um, heroism uh, for you guys to step up in the call when it was that time frame to do what you guys did. And it's unfortunate that the circumstances didn't turn out to where, you know, today a young man is living. That That's very commendable, Dave. I, I think, you know, there's not very many guys that actually could say they rode cowboy on the side of an Apache helicopter at any point. I'll tell you that, Scott. I'll tell you that. <laughs> has, has it ever been has it been done again Dave do you know um I don't I don't know I, don't, I, I actually don't know I've certainly never uh, heard of it uh, yeah. one for the one for the record books so to speak um it probably is yeah it was uh the Apache uh, or the Army Air Corps commissioned quite a good painting um but it's it's of the scene that it, it captures the scene uh, of us bringing, bringing uh, the moment we got a couple four back to the helicopter, and uh, they capture the the atmosphere quite well. Um, but the uh, the pilots are kind of effect, basically putting down like the the, the putting down like defensive fire with their nine millimeter pistols while we're kind of floundering with the casualty. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, uh, and the book that you were talking about is Apache Inside the Cockpit of the World's Most Deadly Fighting Machine uh, by Ed Macy, and um, that uh, talks about the incredible true story of Ed Macy, a decorated Apache helicopter pilot that takes you inside the cockpit of the the aircraft. And I think that's who you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, it's 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 a fun book. Um, It's and and most mostly accurate, I think. Um, And uh, and you know Ed. Macy, you know, hats off to him. He didn't have to get out of his helicopter, and uh, but he did, and I'm glad he did because uh, it was, it was, you know, his assistance was needed. I think, yeah. um, and it was his plan as well. Um, and uh, so it was and, his original plan. He at, in the very beginning to the CEO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was his. It was his initiative. So, yeah, uh, yeah very good cool. man. Well, you know, you'll have an opportunity here for your wife to relive this story all over again by listening to this episode. It might get you, you know, some extra brownie points or something along that line. She might get all flustered and excited once again. Who knows? Let's let's hope so. Uh, we appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story with us and the background. And um, I think there are a lot of uh, great things that come out of this episode. The decisions that you made, your um, the leadership, uh, the training, the effectiveness, um, all of those types of things, I think, that come into this that good leaders sometimes need to hear just so they can understand what decisions need to be made if they're ever in that type of position. Of course, now people will be able to listen to this episode and know you can put soldiers, Marines, on an Apache helicopter and go into the battlefield. So that alone should stir up some good stuff. Absolutely, yeah. You know, we had to we had to make a very difficult decision, or the CEO had to make a very difficult decision. He had very limited time in which to make it. You know, he, he didn't have all the information at hand, um, and there was a there was a lot at stake, a huge amount at stake. So um, it was a it was a it's a difficult moment for him. But um, the the these situations happen, don't they, on the battlefield? And uh, and uh, it's important that we uh, we learn the lessons and and. And move on. Dave, I appreciate you coming on and sharing that with us. Cheers, gents. Thank you. Have a good night.